Hi, thank you for tuning in to State of the Arts, a podcast where art forms are embraced and artists are celebrated. I'm Lee, your hostess of Ceremonies, and this is episode 63, the Valentine's Day special. I'm joined this week by my wonderful darling husband, Joe. Hello. We're going to explore the fascinating topic of romantic love depicted in the arts. This is going to be good. This is going to be exciting. <laughs> yes, it is. Now, going way, way back to ancient times, people were a lot more spiritual as a whole. When technology came, it's kind of like... Ruined everything. <laughs> and back in the ancient Egyptian times and Greek times and Roman times, they were most romantic artwork depicted gods and goddesses as couples and um i think yeah there was homosexuality too so gods and gods goddesses and goddesses and uh also a lot of people believe that the king and the queen were gods themselves so <laughs> which is messed up <laughs> but they were a lot of art depicted the royal family also and uh and it's just interesting that when you look back so many centuries and the Song of Songs, which is in the Bible and the Torah, is actually, I would say, one of the first romance novels. It's very graphic in describing two lovers' physical encounters with each other. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read that one yet, but um, from what you've told me, yeah, that's what it sounds like. I mean, I think technology really was um, one of the biggest influencers in changing uh, culture because... You know, if you think about before the days of um, TV and internet, cell phones, I mean, even the days before radio, I mean, people had to entertain themselves. So they really had to engage more into their entertainment. You know, they had to read books, they had to play instruments, they had to sing. Um, I think it also, um, it also affected the family and it, it affected how people bond with each other. You know, families would sit around and and they would they would play songs together, right? And it was yeah. like a way for people to bond. Now, you know, you'll see people like you know family get-togethers. Everyone's hanging out on their phones. No one's really interacting. They're in front with of each the other. TV sometimes. In front of the TV, yeah. um, and you know, speaking of of that, when it comes to those days, the piano was really the center of home music. In those, uh, in particular, the romantic period, from a musical perspective. You know, like in the early 1800s, the piano was the center. You know, there were a lot of innovations in manufacturing and the availability of piano. So a lot of people had, you know, like they call upright pianos. This was the this was the uh, surge in the upright piano because it was compact. So a lot of people could have it in their homes. And believe it or not, women particularly played the piano, um, continuing a long tradition of keyboard playing. They played for their own pleasure, but they also played for others. And it was actually considered very feminine and expected for a well-to-do woman to be home and to play the piano for guests and for their husbands and for their families. And, uh, you know, famous composers who were piano players like, you know, Frédéric Chopin and Liszt, they actually supported themselves in part by giving piano lessons to -to well-to-do women. And the teachers expected them to practice like, you know, like everyone else you know, for several hours and uh, thereby keeping young women home occupied. So (laughs) keeping um, hormonal teenagers in check, keeping them out of trouble, (laughs) let's just say that, right. And, you know, helping them stay home and and practice. And, and actually uh, uh, there were 
some of them achieved astonishing fluency. Some of them were quite professional women pianists in the first half of the 19th century. Clara Week was uh, a virtuoso. Um, she ended up marrying a famous composer, Robert Schumann, who, you know, eventually she became Clara Schumann. And she was a great uh, composer and piano player in her own right. So, you know, romanticism really came from, you know, like the 1800s, the romantic period of art and, and, and music. And basically, romantic basically came from the medieval romance, a poem or tale. And they were usually about heroic people or heroic events like King Arthur and Charlemagne. And basically, it was just some, something distant, something imaginary or ideal that was far from everyday reality. So I think whenever we see romance, especially in movies and, and in pop culture, yeah. it's always something that's like far from reality. It's always something that's like kind of exaggerated. Grandiose. But I, but I think one of the things that happens in our society today is that people see TV shows and movies and they see how love is in movies and in, you know, um, you know in stories, but then they actually believe that that's how it's supposed to be in real life. I think it was always like that. It was always like that, right? Yeah. yeah. If you're going back to the Middle Ages, the romance novels back then kind of defined the culture with this unrealistic, what they called courtly love. Mm -hmm. Everything was over the top. It was all about gift giving and poetry. And, you know, just this unrealistic view of love. There were no, you know, chores to be done together or bills to be paid right, or right, right. any of that. It's just like this, like, whimsical. <laughs> You know, strings are playing and birds are singing and it's like the sun is setting and it's just like all this stuff. And it doesn't mean that love isn't 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 real. It doesn't mean that love isn't, you know, amazing or something to be sought after in the world. It's just that, you know, I don't think it is the way we perceive it in pop culture. I mean, for me personally, when I met you, you know, yeah, you stood out and you definitely I when I met you, I knew you were somebody significant. But for me, it was more like natural. Like I just felt like a natural draw towards you. And I just felt like we kind of knew each other already. And I think that's the best way to describe when you meet someone significant. It's never like this, like, oh, my God. You know, like it's like, whoa, like who is she? Like she stands out from other people. And it, our love, like for me, my attraction towards you and my, my feeling towards you was just so natural. Like when I met you, I didn't feel nervous at all. I just felt like it just felt right to me, you know? Yeah. So it's like you don't see it really like that. And every everything in pop culture has to be dramatized or else why would people watch it, right? Although my favorite, uh, and I don't, I'm not into romantic films, but one of my favorite ones is The Notebook. I thought it was pretty realistic. It's kind of you know, mellow, the way they met at uh, an amusement park. And then they had ups and downs in their relationship. It wasn't perfect. You know, they went through a lot of trials before they finally ended up together at the end. More realistic, except for the fact that, except, well, I don't want to ruin the movie, so I'm not going to ruin the ending. <laughs> this, yeah, something that was unrealistic at the right. end. <laughs> let me just state there, before anyone thinks I'm like, you know, what's like, what's wrong with this guy? When I first met you was when I worked in the hospital. So, you know, your dad was my patient. So it was actually a really cool story. But let me just tell you and everybody listening that when I, when, when I had my first date, with Lisette and sh and she showed up at the restaurant and I saw her get out of the car. 
then she took my breath away. Aww. I was like, whoa. Because I was working a night shift in the hospital. She was sleeping in a jerry chair when her dad was sick. So it wasn't, you know, the lights were dimmed. I was like half asleep because I was working the nights and I was just kind of miserable. And like it, it definitely wasn't the the ideal setting to meet somebody. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But when you got out of that car, then I was like, whoa. My whoa moment was when I saw you with your haircut and all shaved. <laughs> you thought I was younger than you. <laughs> no. I thought you stepped right out of one of those classic movies. <laughs> I like that image you have of me. <laughs> so uh, I want to get into the dance history. And dancing plays such an integral part in courtship and romance all throughout history and even today. And going back to the 13th century when the waltz was invented, it's pronounced waltz, not waltz, because waltz is English-sized. Mm-hmm. But the waltz was invented in, in um, it was actually in Vienna, Austria. Vienna, Austria. Mm-hmm. And it was a scandalous dance. It was actually, like right now, it's pretty mellow because of the society we live in, <laughs> so free with their sexuality. But back then, it was considered very raunchy. <laughs> and I think it was actually banned in some circles. But the waltz hold, as you know, I've danced the waltz with you before, how the lady is tilted to your right. There's a reason for that. It's so the man can whisper things into her ear while they're dancing. Really? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And the, the same thing goes now for the foxtrot. Well, the foxtrot is a more recently invented dance, and it's got the same holds because it was pulled from the waltz. This is a place where... Our two fields kind of intersect, right? Dance and music. Mm-hmm. Right? So were these dances created and invented during during a certain period of time? Was it during this romantic era, like the early 1800s? Uh, well, back then, the minuet was popular, like square dancing, the waltz, of course. The waltz just held for centuries and is still around today. The waltz just is has you know 10 lives it's not going anywhere it didn't actually originally start out as a minuet isn't that originally oh uh, no minuet? minuet came after the waltz the minuet came after the waltz mm-hmm. yeah the waltz was invented during the middle ages oh wow mm-hmm. so romanticism um you know they considered music as the ideal romantic art right yes and you know composers back then would basically they would uh they would write what was called programmatic music, right? So it was like mm-hmm. music that was written to a story. I guess what we would consider modern day movies. Like you have movie music, obviously from composing. But um you know they have programmatic music, operas, right? That goes in that category. A lot of symphonies that like Beethoven and, and other composers wrote were some of them were based on stories or they were dedicated to certain uh, characters, right? They had a heroic symphony, the Eroica by Beethoven, his third symphony. But what you had, what was interesting in the Romantic era was the song, right? So the German Lied, you know, was a Romantic Lied, which was built on basically the marriage of uh, poetry and music together. So they would put poetry to music. And basically, it was a lot of times it was mostly just piano and voice, 
right? So this was kind of like the birth of song. This was kind of like where songs really kind of came from. I mean, you always had songs. You've had folk music and you've had songs during medieval times. You had things even before medieval times. So there was mm-hmm. always singing, right? You had operas and stuff like that, but you also had, and you had choirs, right? You had vocal works and chorales and things like that made for, for worship and for church. But the, the song, which really became really popular in the, in the romantic era in the 1800s, um, I think really kind of broke the mold for modern music that we know today for songs, right? Just putting words to music. Yeah. I think that's kind of the ultimate expression of romanticism in a lot of ways. Even though I'm not a words person, I'm not a you're the lyrics person, I'm not the <laughs> lyrics person. I'm the instrumental person. To me, I experience the greatest feeling and emotion through instrumental music. Cuz to me, it's it's like reading a book compared to watching a movie, right? Like you go watch a movie and you're you're kind of spoon-fed the story, you see mm-hmm. the characters. But most people, people who like to read especially, will tell you, when you read the book, it's so much better because you get to use your imagination. You get to picture the characters and you get to picture the scene and picture the environment, picture the time period, right? You get to, it forces you to, to, to use your imagination more. To me, it's the same thing with instrumental music. It's the same with a symphony. When I can hear, when I hear the music instrumentally, it, it, it allows me to feel it and see it the way I see it. When someone's singing it in words, as beautiful as it could be, and as amazing as so many songs that have been written are, I feel like it's the same thing as like watching a movie, right? But you know, people yes. experience things in you know in different ways. They experience art and they interpret art in different ways. Well, I think what Beethoven, uh, the song that he wrote for his student who he was in love with, he was teaching the Italian Duchess. And he wrote oh, Moonlight, uh, Sonata. Moonlight Sonata. That is so mm-hmm. powerful. You could yep. feel the love that he had for her mm-hmm. in that song. Yeah, yep. his piano set on a number 14. Mm-hmm. Um, Beethoven really kind of broke the mold. He was really the the glue that connected the classical period into the romantic period because he was one of the first composers to really compose passionate music that was based on his own feelings, right? Because most of the time, composers before then, especially in classical times, would compose works for, um, they would compose works for whatever king that was serving, right? They would compose works for, you know, God. They would compose works for the autocrat at the time, right? But King Joseph, stuff like that. Um, but Beethoven was really kind of like one of the first people to really compose music that was really expressing how he felt about something. Expressing how he felt about his frustrations with his life, you know, his frustrations with love, because Beethoven, you know, he didn't come from a wealthy family, and he so desperately wanted to marry a woman of nobility, and he would fall in love with these, these countesses, and, and, you know, he wasn't from a royal family, so he would never be able to really get them, and then, you know, and then his deafness came, which was another frustration, right, his brother, you know, ended up marrying a woman he was in love with and and especially his deafness, especially when he was going deaf and he had to kind of keep it a secret because he was so embarrassed about it. How can he, of all people, lose the one sense that should be the most developed of him, you know? That to me was really the start, you know, like when I was reading through my History of Western Music book from school, that's the Romantic Period chapter really started with Beethoven. That makes sense. One of the reasons why he's my favorite composer. 
I'm a romantic deep at heart. Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good with lyrics, though. <laughs> That's my forte. <laughs> I can admit that. Well, that's why we make a good team. Uh, so um, I want to invite you to a movie. You want to watch a movie with me? Sure. And you guys get to all listen to us watch a movie. But don't worry, we're not going to be here for two hours. Uh, so the first film ever made and commercially shown to the public was A Romance. In 1896, an 18-second long silent film of a vaudeville actress named May Irwin Kissing, a Broadway actor named John Rice, was released to the public. It was directed by William Heiss and produced by Edison Studios, which was owned by Thomas Edison. Oh, I see that, Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Oh, isn't this exciting? Yeah, unfortunately, no one's going to be able to hear it. It's a silent film. It's a silent film. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Okay, so they're talking to each other, and they were really close. Their faces are touching. Really close, a little, little awkward, but <laughs> it's like they're talking cheek to cheek. <laughs> and here, now they kiss, and that's the end of it. Wow, that's great. <laughs> that's the first film ever made. Wow. Went by so fast. Yeah, it did. <laughs> And I guess that was kind of like risque back then, right? To show yeah. a couple kissing. Like, ooh. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a rated R for that time. Oh, yeah. So the first <laughs> movie was a rated R movie of all time. <laughs> How about that? It's trash. <laughs> I really, I'm surprised. I didn't know that this was the first film <laughs> ever to be made. So I encourage anyone who's interested to look up The Kiss, uh, 1896. 1896, The Kiss. Mm-hmm. I've, I've really grown to uh, appreciate silent films since I've been um, studying film composing and, uh, you know, composing to silent films as kind of like practice. Really have gone, like, how much more they have to act, they have to, like, do more. You have to do more. And it actually forces you to do more as a composer, too. You know, it's like wall-to-wall music. You know, a lot of times when you listen to, you know, like music and film, there's breaks, there's dialogue you have to kind of you know take the music out at times it pushes the limits of but the composer. with this it's like you keep the music going continuously because it's like there's no sound there's no dialogue so you have to kind of tell the story for the audience because there's no you know there's no dialect there's no talking sorry i meant yeah. dialogue no dialogue so um yeah and then when i was talking about the song Right, Robin and Clara Schumann really, really made the the German Lieder really popular. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they wrote songs together, so they were a married couple who were both composers and piano players. That's Can great. you imagine what that must have been like, <laughs> being in their home, just kind of watching them? It's like being, it's like two chefs being married together. It's like literally, too many chefs in the kitchen. Right? <laughs> but then they also brought um, the the parlor songs, right? British and North American song, right? Old mm-hmm. parlor songs. Um, kind of makes me think about how jazz really kind of came to be jazz kind of started like in brothels like the piano player would be there and he would be playing playing music for the dancers and for the you know for the prostitutes and he would just be playing music in the background and even though it might not be love (laughs) you know it's 
It's amazing. A lot of great things started from there. The Argentine tango as well, and makeup actually started with prostitutes. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of great things come from... A lot of great art comes from bad beginnings. I mean, look at hip-hop, look at jazz, look at the blues. I mean, look at... um you know, so many, so much music, especially music created by African Americans that was created out of um, oppression and, you know, art and music, songs. How many, how many songs have been written from heartbreak and people being in pain, you know, like there's beauty to it. Well, like Shakespeare, he wrote, he wrote a lot of romantic stories, but most of them ended in tragedy. Didn't they all end the tragedy? Uh, he wrote a few comedies. Oh, okay. Yeah, they call it comedies, but I don't think they were that funny, but <laughs> nothing tragic happened. I think it was not like a funny <laughs> ha-ha kind of thing. It was more like a funny, like, ironic kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Merchant of Venice. More of like a clever funny. Like, oh, that's, yeah. that's clever, mm-hmm. but it's not like funny. Exactly. I'm not going to laugh at it. <laughs> Yeah, we can go on and on about the Romantic period, you know, uh, composers like Schumann, Chopin, you know, Beethoven, lists. Um, they say that, uh, you know, from what I hear, they say that Gustav Mahler pretty much ended the Romantic period. I guess Gustav Mahler was one of the big ones, too, with the Romantic period. Remember we watched that video together about Mahler and his, his symphonies? and Yes. He wrote these gut-wrenching symphonies. Um, if anybody wants to hear one of the most beautiful symphonies ever written, beautiful pieces of classical music, check out Gustav Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5. It's called the Adagietto. It's a movement for He wrote it for his wife, and it was just strings and a harp. It is just oh. absolutely gorgeous. That sounds beautiful. Yeah, if you want to mm-hmm. just kind of listen to something really relaxing and beautiful, like if you have time mm-hmm. to sit home, like, don't listen to it in a car. Listen to it at home or in your, your headphones. To really appreciate something instrumental that's just got so much feeling and emotion to it. I think Check ar- it out. I think art itself is so romantic. And, you know, in the ballroom dancing, it's each dance does tell a story of a romance, especially the rumba. Yeah, yeah, I love the rumba. Oh, rumba? Mm-hmm. Rumba. I was actually thinking, I mean, since you've been teaching me dancing, since we've been together... It seems like to me the Argentine tango is the most intimate yes. of all the dances. I mean, it's really kind of stands out from the other dances too, because it's not just like based on like steps. It really, is like a a conversation. It and is a dance, yes. and it's very intimate. Yes, it's very intimate it's, and mm-hmm. a passionate dance. I, I think it's my favorite, but it's, it's like something that I'm a little intimidated by. It's a lot of people's favorite, and a lot of people are intimidated by it. Yeah. It's actually, some people feel it's the hardest dance to learn, which I'm not sure about. I think it's de- it's up for debate. I don't think it's, I don't think it's hard to learn. See, to me, Argentine tango always kind of reminded me of jazz. Like, <laughs> yes, I'm not saying jazz is easy to learn. It's not easy to learn, but. Jazz, believe it or not, jazz really is more based on feeling. I mean, all music is based on feeling, but jazz in particular, you can't really notate jazz on a piece of paper. You can notate classical music on a piece of paper, and you can, for the most part, perform it as it's written. But jazz is really based on feeling, and I think that 
um, the Argentine tango is kind of the same thing. It's really it a dance based on feeling. And some of the steps are a little complicated, you know? What is it? The, the eight steps? It's the a, ochos? The ochos, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's comp- it took me a while to get it. But I think the feeling is really what really made it. It's about emotion. What it was. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. It is. You know, in the sense of a woman, that was the Argentine tango that Al Pacino danced. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. hoo <laughs> I had to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even see that movie. I just know that that's the only thing I know from it. Wait, did I see it? Scent of a Woman? Was that the one where he was dying? and He was blind? I was blind. Oh, I did see that. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. I did see that. But wasn't he dying or something? Oh, he was blind. Was that with Chris O'Connell? Was Chris O'Connell, Chris yeah. Chris O'Connell was like, he was like kind of like... His protege. Like, like his protege. He was like mm-hmm. escorting him around and yeah. they took that Ferrari out for a ride and he wanted to drive it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did see mm-hmm. that. Okay. I did see that. I only saw the tango scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, romance is something that has been with us, you know. Since the beginning of time. <laughs> has it, though? I mean, you were telling me earlier today about the history about marriage, how marriages originally were more like uh, business arrangements, right? And it was about marrying into royalty and stuff like that. I mean,. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how marriage is kind of the idea of marriage has kind of changed throughout the centuries. This idea, like, when did the idea of 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 love being the reason for people to get married kind of start? Well, some people say the Middle Ages. Some people say the Victorian era when romance novels came out. But I think it might be a cultural thing, also, because I think when the arranged marriages, a lot of them happened in Europe, maybe in Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I think it's possible. I think in some maybe the Native American cultures or the um, South American cultures like the Aztec and all that. I'm not sure how it worked down there. It might be a little. They might be a little freer. I'm pretty sure in the islands in the Pacific, people were permitted to marry for love hmm. because it's the more free spirited in the tribal cultures. Right, right. I think today it's still the case. I think. Many people get married for utilitarian reasons more than for love. I mean, I think a lot of people get married because for security. I mean, years, I mean, a long time ago, people got married for survival. I mean, people got married to survive. They got married because you needed to, you know, raise kids and, you know, work the farm and, you know, and it wasn't really much about love. It was just really more about survival and convenience mm-hmm. i guess i'm guessing maybe a few of the lucky couples actually yeah loved each other and were attracted to each other well we can go even deeper into this about you know god and love and religion you know <laughs> that if you know since man mm-hmm. has been here we've always had love so that's a deeper topic that's a but, deeper topic you know mm-hmm. if we want to talk about societal the societal love you know, I, I think that getting married for love is a rel- still a relatively new concept. I mean, but then again, I think, like I said before, I think people still get married for utilitarian reasons. People get mm-hmm. women to marry a man because he's got a good job and he makes a he makes a lot of money and he's, you know, he might come from a certain kind of family. And, you know, mm-hmm. you have like, you know, British aristocracies and stuff like that. And I mean, I mean. The royal family still exists, for God's sakes. I mean, you know, that right there shows that we still value um, security and safety 
and affluence when we choose when a lot of people choose their mates and happiness and love has little to do with it and i think a lot of people go in it knowing that that's the crazy part and i teach a lot of families i I go to a lot of families houses teaching piano and guitar and i see all different kinds of people and i see a lot of people I, i go to a lot of affluent homes and i see people don't really see much love there it's sad. But you see all the other stuff. You see the house and the, the things and the stuff and the and all the other things that go around with it. But you don't really always see a warm household. Well, Sometimes you see it, though. You know what was interesting? While I was doing the, my research for this episode today, I gained a whole new respect for the Victorians. I used to think the Victorians were stuffy and... Not my kind of people. <laughs> but apparently that's when elopements became very popular during the 1800s. And because it was because of some romantic literature that came out. And there were a lot of rebellious young people who ran off and got married for love, upsetting their families and, you know, everyone involved. <laughs> and there was actually a town in England that specialized in elopements. In fact, a priest published some memoirs. Wow. about these elopements. What was the name of the town? Gretna Green is the name of the town. <laughs> Gretna Green? That sounds like someone's name. It's a town in the United Kingdom that was specialized in elopements. <laughs> and wow. Yeah. You learn something new every day. <laughs> you do. <laughs> it's quite amazing. So does that mean that elopement was in, started in England? Is that where it began? Or... No one really knows. No one really knows, but it seems like that's probably where it started. <laughs> I mean, there had to have been some point in history. Some couple were just like, hey, you want to get married? Yeah, all right. Do you want to have a party? No. Nah. Let's just go to the local courthouse and <laughs> make it, you know, have the, you know, have them take out their quill. And <laughs> sign the necessary documents to in make the- this legal... <laughs> On the parchment. On the parchment paper. Well, we're out of time, folks. Uh, thanks again for joining us for another episode of State of the Arts. I'm here with my wonderful husband, Joe. Oh. And I want to wish you all a beautiful Valentine's Day. Thanks for having me again. Anytime, honey. And just a spoiler alert, Joe and I are working on a project together. I'm not going to say what it is, but it's very exciting and it will be released hopefully by the end of the year. And I want to wish everyone listening a happy and healthy day. Stay positive, stay safe, and stay true to your dreams. Take care, everyone.